Our guest today is Sovik Paul, founder of CathBuddy, a healthcare startup that is a medical device startup that is disrupting the intermittent catheter uh, market. So um, I don't think that's an overreach at all, knowing what you do. So welcome to the show. Good to see you. Sorry. Good to see you too, Hubert. So uh, thanks for making time. Um, obviously, the first question I have in this series is always on how it got started. So how, if you could tell me in your own words, uh, how how did CathBody get started? What inspired you? And what were the first few steps you took? Yeah, sure. So um, CathBuddy really has its start um, seven years ago now, which is kind of crazy to think about. But I was preparing to start graduate school to get trained as an industrial designer when uh, my close friend sustained a spinal cord injury in a car accident. And basically, I spent two weeks in the hospital with her and her family, uh, just kind of experiencing how difficult that situation was for her. And one of the reasons I decided to go to design school in the first place was this belief that design as a practice could be used to help improve people's lives. So the next natural thought was, well, if it can help improve people's lives, then in this really specific instance, it should be able to provide me with some answers of how do I help my friend who's gone through this life-changing moment. Um, So throughout grad school at the School of Visual Arts in New York, I focused on design for spinal cord injury. Um, as the subject of my graduate thesis, ended up graduating and working for Johnson and Johnson partially because of that work um, as a design strategist with a focus on consumer medical devices. And then ultimately in 2018, decided to take the leap and uh, start CathBuddy as its own company. And I think the the big finding that I had when I was working at Johnson and Johnson was if you have an idea as a designer or as an entrepreneur, um, it's relatively rare that a company like J&J is going to come in and buy or license the idea. There's a lot of legwork that creators have to do in order to prove that there's a need for the device, that the device itself works, that there's a viable commercializable future for that device. And I think that's where... um, I personally felt like I needed to kind of see this through to the logical conclusion. So what were the first few steps? You graduated or did you ditch? No. So, so I ended up graduating um, from SVA and then, you know, for three years worked at Johnson and Johnson. Um, What was fortunate for me was that uh, my graduate school ended up piloting this program um, called the ground floor incubator. Uh, where they try to provide support to recent alumni to basically take their ideas and build a business model around them and really kind of get started in terms of thinking about projects, not as projects, but as viable ventures. Um, And I think that structure was really important, especially for someone coming out of graduate school and starting to work um, at a fairly demanding job, you know, just having, the obligation to put hours in to really think through, okay, like what does this look like if I'm actually selling the device? Who do I need to talk to? How do I get in front of investors? Just thinking through all of that is, you know, really important. And it's also relatively abstract in the sense that 
without the structure, it's kind of hard to make those logical leaps yourself and to come to the realization of, of like, oh, I need to build a business plan or I need to think about reimbursement or regulatory approval. It's really helpful to kind of have a structure in place. But basically from the incubator, um, I had a pitch deck and at some point I started working with a uh, friend of mine from high school and we ended up entering pitch competitions together. We won a $15,000 grant from Tufts University, got into a program called Mass Challenge in Boston. Um, and so it was really a series of very incremental steps of, you know, does this pass the sniff test from people who have seen many different ventures and things like that? And, you know, could this actually exist in the world? The way to best describe that is to say that when you're an early stage investor, as you know, as an accelerator, we don't just invest. We also spend a lot of time with the entrepreneurs in, in, in our program. And so um, the most important piece of the puzzle is the entrepreneur. And, and is he or she able to take in uh, constructive criticism, respond to it, consider it, move, and, um, and, and, and take in all the things that he or she could know and then digest it and make a uh, incremental changes and improvements and you've obviously uh excelled at that uh beautifully but that's that's a very important thing to overcome and have that internal uh willpower or the people around you that can um support you in those moments when aren't when things aren't going right or when you get a big thumbs down from someone or get discouraged or something doesn't go your way uh obviously you need to have the internal willpower, and if that's not enough, then the external um, group of people around you that can support you in that decision. So I know your your company is very young, uh, but I mean, if you were to think about a hurdle that you overcome, uh, that if you overcome, or a moment where you where you really had to pause and say, "Ooh, this is really the direction I thought this was going," and now I can either stop or I gotta go a different way. Is is there is there one? <laughs> let's just say, let's yeah. keep it to one. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> more than one. Uh, but um, you know, can you pick one and tell us a little bit about how that happened and and and, and what you what you ended up doing and how you did? There are definitely a top three that come to mind, but for the purposes of this podcast, I'll uh, I'll speak to one. So basically, you know, the way that the entire company started was through um, kind of a personal connection to the problem. And, and just to give folks background as to what we actually do, what we're doing is we're building a reusable catheter system that allows people to safely and portably reuse their catheters after use so that it reduces um, urinary tract infection risk, but it also helps to kind of reduce the amount of supplies that an individual needs to manage and reduces the impact of quality of life that intermittent catheters can have on someone who uses them. And because we had started with a user-centered design process, it was very easy in retrospect for us to sort of delude ourselves into thinking that we truly and intimately understood the user. Um, and so Basically, in terms of getting the initial concept down uh, and developing it into a product, what we had done was we had set up interviews with uh, 10 or 15 catheter users in New York City, which is where I'm uh, based, 
And we would have these recurring meetings with them where we would first have a general interview about um, catheters and how they use catheters. And then we would show them sketches and 3D models and 3D printed prototypes and have them interact with it and give us feedback. And it was a very basic sort of user discovery methodology. Where we kind of ran afoul was basically not being diligent in continuing to check in with users along the development process. And we ultimately ended up having a perspective similar uh, to like this statement, which is, you know, now that we've done the user research, we can move on to regulatory and we can start thinking about our path through the FDA. And uh, we can allow that regulatory pathway to influence product development. But, you know, our failure and where we had messed up was not going back to the users and evaluating whether or not those changes would be acceptable. And so, you know, we've made a lot of changes to how we were making the catheters reusable to the design of the catheter itself. And none of this was validated. And ultimately, we were in a um, accelerator program that was hosted by a spinal cord injury institute. And one of the really incredible opportunities that came from that program was the ability to have a focus group using sort of like marketing collateral uh, to get feedback from people who actually use catheters. And basically, it was a real, um, a really difficult pill to swallow because, you know, we had been developing this system. We thought we had an idea of what users wanted. And all of a sudden, we have this focus group where people couldn't see the value in some of the design decisions that we made. And in general, had pretty, you know, there are some people who are like, oh, yeah, I tried this out. But there are lots of people who are kind of like, oh, no, like this would not fit into my lifestyle at all. And so this was kind of smack dab in the middle of COVID. We're in the middle of trying to raise our seed round and we get this like pretty negative feedback um, from users. And so it was a real uh, moment where we had to hit pause and and kind of think about a couple of different things simultaneously. You know, do we continue with the raise? You know, can we ethically do that? Um, Do we continue with the product development understanding that maybe what we did was communicate the benefits of the product incorrectly? Um, Ultimately, what we decided to do was um, really double down on user research to really like lean into getting feedback from folks, even if we knew that it would be a painful process and that there was there was going to be as much wrong with the system as we had gotten right. And so we worked with our development partners to quickly put together um, what's called a formative study where we um, we reviewed the requirements that the FDA had kind of laid out for us in a response to a pre-submission that we had submitted um, and used that to create four different system architectures for the overall cath buddy system. We then tested that with 20 uh, or just about 20 catheter users. And the results weren't as bad as we thought. Like the, uh, the majority of people said that they would either consider or would be extremely willing to try the systems that we had put in front of them. But the feedback was really critical in terms of helping us to kind of rectify our approach and make sure that um, the system that we were designing wasn't determined necessarily by the regulatory path, but by what users would actually interact with. Um, And since we did that, uh, we basically sort of revised our entire development strategy so that we're um, 
actively trying to get feedback from users at regular increments. Um, so whether that's, you know, the NSF I-Corps program or doing additional uh, human factor studies, we're always trying to validate key decisions with users instead of assuming that we just know them really well. I can see how that would be disappointing. Yeah. Say, wait a second, spend the last two years developing this for you, but you mean you don't like it? In, in that moment, it's also really tempting to just be like, well, you know, they don't understand, you know, like mm-hmm. we didn't do a good job of communicating it and like they aren't, fully comprehending like what we're building. And, you know, I think uh, in those moments, you just have to kind of swallow your pride and just be like, you know, we're the ones who got it wrong. The users are ultimately going to be the people who make the purchase decision. So we need to respect what they think and, and retool our approach to they expect or what they want. That, that's an important point. And I think um, that goes along many different because the same is true if uh, we see this all the time when a pitch is done and um, obviously you heard this a million times but if, if the investors don't understand your pitch or they misunderstand it it's, it's not their fault it's yeah. not their fault now it can always be an individual who just is on a different wavelength sure but even in general you can't get your point across it is not the investor's fault. Uh, it's, it's such a knee-jerk reaction to say, oh, yeah, that room was full of people. I didn't get it. Listen, your job, and this is exactly what you said, my, my job as an entrepreneur is to, under, to understand what people need and to express well what it is we do. If, if, if I can't get them to understand it quickly, th- th- then something's wrong, but, but not necessarily with them, but, but something I need to consider changing. But it takes someone who's willing to take the insight and, and run with it and and make something out of it. So um, that's a that's a real interesting, uh, and certainly I can imagine a gut wrenching type of experience with your, your end users. I mean, yeah. your approach that's that's not easy. Well, let, let's swing to the other side when, when we're we're talking positive surprises. Um, I'll combine the two questions. One is like something that happened that surprised you on the positive spectrum that you didn't expect, and um, maybe. Ultimately, uh, what did you do to get yourself into that position for that to happen? But the second thing also I want to attach to that question is advisors and people that that you have around you that you seek counsel of. Obviously, if you fleshed out the point about your users, but on the company itself, in uh, the bigger the bigger picture items, you know, how do you have some people you can go to, and uh, and and if so. Who are they? And, and maybe they have played a role in uh, some of the positive things that happened to you as well. So many questions in one. But... Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, totally fine. Um, so in terms of our advisors, we have a pretty extensive advisory board. I think it's probably more extensive than, than many other medical device startups. And, and part of the reason for that is just recognizing that as a first-time entrepreneur, there is a very heavy lift uh, on that I need to do in order to be able to make the right types of decisions um, to try to ensure the success of the company as much as possible. Um, and so, you know, I think just stepping back, you know, when you're looking at many me- uh, medical device entrepreneurs in particular, you know, these tend to be pretty well networked folks who have worked in industry for two or three decades and they're venturing out on their own with a clinically proven concept that's coming out of the lab somewhere. Um, 
And, and so the circumstances around starting a company from like when you fit that criteria are very different than what I found myself facing, particularly as someone who doesn't have an MBA or anything like that, who's trained as an industrial designer. And so I think one of the things that we've done is tried really hard to get a group of advisors who could provide insight and advice from everything from sort of the basic clinical science. So we have two urologists on our board um, through customer voice. You know, my friend who had the accident, she's on our advisory board, as is another uh, friend of mine who lives with a spinal cord injury. But then the other way that we found advisors is really through uh, networking and through pitch events. So one of our commercialization advisors, we had met him in Boston at a conference where we had kind of given a pitch about CathBuddy. And we closed that pitch by saying, you know, we're looking for investors, but we're also looking for commercialization advisors. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the ways um, that we got someone on board. And I think in general, the through line is very consistent. It's you have to put yourself out there. You have to kind of pursue every lead and opportunities will kind of uh, present themselves to you. And you have done that, that really admirably putting a grid together of pitch opportunities and competitions where you would have those collisions happen for you. And then every now and then something would happen that puts you on in, on a trajectory to in touch with someone. So um, kind of going back to the question of something positive that happened that surprised you just so we don't just have the multiple, yeah. multiple negative ones to talk about uh, something uh, that you didn't expect all of a sudden so-and-so showed up and XYZ happened. Does, does that happen? Yeah, no, I mean, it definitely does. Um, but you know, the positive things definitely take a lot of work. Um, uh, you know, they don't just happen. Mm-hmm. And so the thing that comes to mind is actually with respect to closing our previous round, we had graduated from health wildcatters. We had a couple of like $200,000 of commitments in terms of investment. And in fact, we were having a rolling close, which is one of those things that you should probably not do if you're fundraising and you have the luxury of not being in imminent danger of running out of cash. I think it's better to have like a very tight process around the fundraise. Basically, uh, $200,000 committed, COVID hit, and every single lead that we had been talking to just completely evaporated and dried up. And um, for a long time, it was really difficult to see like how we would raise investment in this environment. We thought, you know, we're going to really have to cobble this together by getting twenty-five to fifty thousand dollar checks um, from individuals, and there it would be really difficult to get a lead investor to get any kind of institutional funding. And um, ultimately, though, what ended up happening was we did find a lead investor. Um, and a lead investor that was a, a VC fund at that, which is relatively rare for early stage medical device companies. Um, and I think what was really surprising about that was we had actually met this investor literally a year before he decided to invest. And it was one of those things where when we had big milestones completed, like getting our first patent or getting a couple of different SBIR grants in through the door, he was always someone that I followed up with. And then he ultimately came in and ended up being our lead investor, raising a full uh, 750K seed round 
on top of that 200,000 where we kind of converted all of the notes and cleaned up the cap table. And so that was, you know, a really positive surprise that things resolved themselves the way that they did. By demonstrating that you set yourself goals and then stuck to them, but also were honest about some that you didn't hit because that's how life goes. It doesn't always roll out exactly the way you think, uh, but coming up with a new plan, giving updates, uh, you established basically a track record with this investor, a track record of trust, and that a year in translated into an investment, which is just really pretty cool. Well, so as we're wrapping now, um, let me just ask you about uh, the future and your your current as of today, yeah. <laughs> early in 2021, your um, your goals or timelines or, or things you would like to see, um, just punting it over to you to, to close us out here. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I had mentioned that we had received a couple of different SBIR grants. Um, so we're actually going to be doing that work sort of in the second quarter of this year, which means currently we're uh, kind of knee deep in core R&D efforts um, to get to a position where we can start testing. Um, so that's been really exciting, especially as an industrial designer who's interested in product development, just being able to see that process through. Um, you know, we've added uh, members to our team. So the entire team is five people, four of whom are part-time, but we have a plan in place for bringing those folks uh, onto the company full-time. And really, you know, we're hoping to translate the progress made on R&D and testing into a Series A raise where um, we're hoping to close in June and July of this year, uh, which means that right now is the time to start for us to start reaching out to investors and to, you know, get acquainted with them and to be able to establish those proof points um, that make someone comfortable investing in the company. Yeah, that's, that's great. A CEO of Cat Buddies, Sovic Paul, joining us here today with uh, Founder Stories.